Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome the Langer family to the BIOS podcast today. Bob Langer, renowned MIT professor, prolific scientist, and serial biotech entrepreneur, and Michael Langer, digital therapeutics leader and venture capitalist. Thank you once again for joining us for a special Father's Day episode. We're looking forward to diving into science, family, and entrepreneurship. In honor of the occasion, help co-host this episode. I'm joined by my colleague at Alex Ventures, my father, Mark Polito. Mark, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself? Delightful to be with the Langer family and, and my son, Chaz, with Alex Ventures. My background in, in activities today is an advisor, investor, and philanthropist. Most recently, uh, I was chairman and CEO of a software company in healthcare, Ability Network. We were purchased by Anobalon where I also serve on the public company board. In addition to being an operating partner at Alix and on Anobalon, prior to that, I was active in private equity for a number of years and also lead operating roles as the CEO of a handful of companies. A zero revenue startup backed by Sequoia, Benefit Point, and before that, a Fortune 10 billions of revenue, McKesson Corporation, so quite a dichotomy. And then before that, Novartis Pharmaceutical CEO here in the US, and then chairman and CEO of Redline, a specialty long-term care distribution and medical billing company. Also served on a number of boards, a chairman of Quidel, a developer and manufacturer of point-of-care rapid diagnostics, Charles Schwab Corporation, iMation, a technology company, Sunrise Medical, medical equipment, and Smile Brands Group, a practice management company in the dental space. On a personal level, I'm active with our family foundation, the Polito Walker Foundation. We focus on education and youth at risk and have been very involved in high school and elementary school board leadership as well as a national trustee of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and also have a passion project. It's a business too. Uh, and we're co-founder and proprietor of Polito Walker Cellars. It's a Napa Valley cult winery. We specialize in extraordinary single vineyard Cabernet and Chardonnay. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Would love for you to kick things off. Langer family, can you share a brief intro with us as well? Bob, can you start? Sure. My background, you know, I was uh, undergrad at Cornell in chemical engineering, graduate student at, at MIT in chemical engineering. But when I got done with my doctorate at MIT, all my friends went into the oil industry and I decided to do something very different. I was fortunate enough to do something very different, which was to work 
in a children's hospital in Boston at Harvard Medical School with a man named Judah Folkman. And I was the only engineer there. And the job I started doing was to see if we could actually isolate substances that could stop blood vessels from growing to tumors. Uh, and people thought that, that they didn't even exist, but I, my, my job was to sort of prove that they did and, and, to, and to find them. And then one of the things that was critical to that was developing ways to deliver those kinds of molecules which were large molecules. And people didn't think that was possible either, but I got involved in trying to develop what are called nanoparticles and microparticles to deliver large molecules. Uh, and, and just for reference, as I'll go over in a minute, so large molecules include RNA and DNA. So that's how I started and I had lots and lots of failures, but eventually I was able to, to, to do this and we published papers in 1976 in science, the isolation of the first blood vessel inhibitors. Ultimately that would lead to drugs like Avastin and ILEA and others that have been used for millions of patients to treat cancer and different eye diseases like macular degeneration. And then another paper in Nature, which was the first micro and nanoparticles that could deliver large molecules. And that would lead to many things, but one of the ones that's gotten a lot of attention recently is a company helped start called Moderna, which is using nanoparticles to deliver messenger RNA for COVID vaccine and, 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 and other things. Uh, so uh, that's how I got started. After that, I became, uh, uh, you know, I, I should point out when I did all this work, it was widely ridiculed. I, my first nine grants were rejected. I couldn't get a job in a chemical engineering department, which was my discipline. And even when I finally got a job in what was then a nutrition department, uh, most of the faculty wanted me to leave because they didn't believe in what I was doing. But I kind of just hung in there and, and eventually things worked out and uh, I'm still at MIT. I'm actually one of 12 Institute professors, which is MIT's you know, high, most uh, highest honor. And, and we've, I, I guess from a publication standpoint, uh, I'm now, I guess, the fourth most cited person in the world and the most cited engineer ever in history. Uh, and we've licensed things to over 400 companies or licensed or sub-licensed over 400 companies. And we've started uh, many companies in the biotech area, probably about 40 uh, with our, our patents and, and uh, people from our lab. Um, so that's uh, a little bit about me. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. And Michael? Yeah, no, th thank you so much for, for having us both. And I can, uh, I can go next. So just by way of my own background, uh, as you might imagine from growing up around my father, I, I got a lot of early exposure towards really exciting things happening in innovation. And in high school, I, I got to intern for a venture capital fund, uh, Polaris Partners. And so I think from seeing a lot of the really exciting work that they were doing in the companies that they were investing in as I got older, it was something that really compelled me to want to be in that kind of an industry. And so as I first started getting into my career, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be in biotech. I, it wasn't something that excited me as much as tech. Um, but fortunately, in terms of where healthcare was going, there was a lot of really exciting opportunities of things happening at the intersection of biotech and tech. And so as I was looking for where I wanted to spend my time, I, I found a company called Pair Therapeutics that was doing some incredible work around changing how we approach medicine and using uh, software as a way of trying to show that you can actually improve outcomes for patients. 
And so now I, I work at Pair and I run our licensing and acquisitions function. And so Pair is really trying to pioneer this new space where we're showing that you can actually use software and take it through randomized control trials. And by doing that, actually improve outcomes for patients and then take it through the regulatory system so that they can be prescribed by clinicians. And to date, we have the first three ever FDA authorized uh, prescription digital therapeutics to, to make efficacy claims. And so I've really enjoyed working at Pair and have been there for about four years now. Um, and outside of that, I, I still had that investment bug in me. And so about a year ago, based on a bunch of my angel investments that I've been doing, I started a fund called Old Silver VC uh, with my sister, Susan, who used to run strategy at Biogen and now is running an oncology startup called Cogent Therapeutics. And at the fund, we do across the space from material science deals, uh, core biotech, and then digital health. And we've done about 16 deals across that, that uh, based on angel investments and through the fund. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to get to see both sides through the investments, but also through doing all my activities around licensing and acquiring companies for pair. Uh, so anyways, it's, it's great to be on here and excited to talk through different things. It's a pleasure to have both of you on this show. And wow, how special, Bob, that we have a chance to share this with our sons. As we embark on this episode, one question we frequently like to ask our guests comes from Dennis Gabor. Uh, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says, the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. So throwing this out to the Langer family, what does inventing the future mean to you? Well, I think it means many things. I mean, you know, what I try to do is invent things in medicine, though I've actually been involved in inventing things in the hair area and other areas as well, and food area as well. But, you know, to me, I'll just pick health because to me, that's such an important thing. And, you know, what I think there's, I don't, I think this is just an amazing time in history where we're seeing all kinds of, of new, you know, biologic advances like gene uh, therapy, gene editing, digital medicine, which Michael's working in, uh, nanotechnology, um, cell therapies, regenerative medicine. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what's going on. And I think inventing these things and, and things that right now don't have a name, uh, which I think will also be transformative. Um, you know, I think we just don't know. If you ask somebody what CRISPR was 10 years ago, nobody would have known. And I expect that we'll see in the next 10 years inventions and discoveries uh, that will also be incredibly important. So to me, what goes on in, in science and, and engineering is, is remarkable. So there are all kinds of patents, all kinds of inventions and, and everything. And I think that that's a part of what we invent. But what you can see as you look at what's going on in the world, people invent the future in all kinds of ways, not just medicine, you know, transportation, space travel, I mean, uh, new materials, you could go on and on. And, and I think it's just incredibly exciting uh, and, and I hope overall good, you know, and I hope we can do things to, I hope we can do things that will improve the environment that can, uh, you know, uh, you know, just be better for people in the entire world by inventing, you know, really transformative things. 
Yeah, I guess to, to tail on that, I think that for me, as, as, as I think about this, you know, it's really what, what are we dreaming about and thinking about what a future can look like? And I think the amazing thing about inventions and all the innovations of, of all the things that we're all looking at from an investment point of view, are these are really people that are the champions and trying to bring forward these new, new science and new technologies to, to change and solve all these different problems that we see. And I think they're really the most exciting thing about inventions is that as human beings, we kind of are, are able to, to figure out how to solve these different, really difficult problems through them. So I think that in, inventing the future is, is something that's, that's very special to human beings that we're able to, to think of novel ways to, to do just that. Great, thank you both. Let's dive into our first topic, finding the entrepreneurial spirit. So before we talk about lighting that entrepreneurial fire and the many exciting endeavors that both of you be part of, I'd like to rewind the clock a bit and explore what drives you. Bob, can you talk a little bit about the meaning of work? Well, to me, what drives me, I don't even think of what I do as work. I mean, you know, I think of what I do as, as wanting to do good for the world in ways that I feel I can contribute. And those ways are both by education and, and training on the one hand and by research on the other. And, you know, I, I guess I've always thought about the power of both those things as the good that can come out of it. Uh, I've loved teaching and training people in the lab. And, and even I, when I was much younger, starting a high school for poor, poor children uh, with others. And, and I, I, I think that, that these things that we can do, you know, just make for healthier, happier people. And, and I guess I've always gotten satisfaction out of seeing that happen um, and, and, and knowing that I helped a little bit uh, on, that, on that kind of thing. Michael, maybe a few words about the meaning of work and, and also how your dad helped instill this in you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's really just what dad said, you know, from a very young age, he would always say that 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 work isn't work, or, or I guess the, the, the best way of spending your time is if you're doing things that really you wouldn't think of as work, because you really just enjoy it. So I, I think I've taken that to heart as I've found the way I want to spend my own time to do things and try to solve things that I think are exciting and important. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard and, you know, some of the things aren't always the most exciting, but in the end, if, if you're, if you're relatively in those spaces, then for the most part, you, I think you find yourself pretty happy uh, and excited by what you're doing. And Bob, a question for you, for those who may not be as familiar, what started your journey in entrepreneurship and, how do you find that entrepreneurial spirit and spark? Yeah, well, I was very naive when I started doing that postdoctoral work. As I mentioned, you know, we made some findings that I felt were important and people started using them academically, you know, in, in universities. But I really felt that they could have a, a big clinical impact. And after 10 years, I was doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't think really anybody in industry cared. Finally, I got a call about nine, 10 years after I started from a multi-billion dollar animal health company, and they were interested in using some of the work we'd done uh, in animal health. 
And the next, and they gave us a grant and they gave me a consulting agreement and they were going to work on it. And the next year, another multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company contacted me and they were interested in for human health and did something very similar and they were going to work on it. But, you know, they did a few experiments and they gave up and that made me very sad because uh, some and, and, and I could see that nothing was going to happen. So then one of my good friends, Alex Klebanoff, who's a professor at MIT, said, Bob, he said, we should start our own company. And so we did. And I could see that little company, which we started, which, uh, you know, could start to make products. And my students were working there. And if the first couple of experiments failed, they, they didn't care. They weren't going to give up. They already spent, you know, years of their life working on this. And so I just kept doing it and doing it. And I could just see that these little companies had, you know, had this belief that, that they could, the people there felt that they could walk through walls and they could get, you know, no matter how hard things worked and how much people didn't believe things could happen, even though they were small, people kept trying. And so I thought that was great. And I could see that these little companies would, could, and I watched this over and over again, make a tremendous difference in the world. So that's how it got started for me. Bob, we're both fortunate. We have children that are entrepreneurs. And Michael, maybe a few words on how your father helped stoke this entrepreneurial spirit as you were growing up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, you know, having seen dad's career, it's been cool because it's not like it's just been, you know, a rocket ship all, you know, up. You know, you, you see it go, I've seen it go all sorts of different ways where he's had, you know, obviously great successes, but, but some not such great successes as well. And so I think seeing how he's handled things that have gone well and things that have not gone well, I feel like are the, the soul of an entrepreneur where you, no matter what happens, good or bad, you always still get back up and figure out a way to make it work or, and don't give up hope and try to figure out how do we make this work and how do we still make this something great. And so I think seeing dad through all his different companies and continue to have that attitude and not be discouraged for more than, you know, an hour or so and, and continue to want to fight to make it work, I think has always been something to me, especially as, as you see, I think who I would think is as good entrepreneurs the ones that you really want to bet on. And, and one of the really important, I think, characteristics of an entrepreneur. Bob, any parenting tips for raising an entrepreneur? Well, I think whatever you do, I mean, you know, I think role models, whether it's for, as a parent or if I look at students in the lab, I think, um, I think just trying to be a good role model to do it, but to, but also how you do it to try to treat people well, you know, to try to, uh, as Michael said, not give up. Uh, I think those are, um, you know, to go after really big transformative ideas. Uh, I, I, I think, um, I think those are some of the things that, that you try to do. And I think for our family, the dinner table was always a, a special place for traditions and conversation. And it is, I think about, uh, Chaz, as he was growing up and the work he's doing today, it, it was always having this respect and, and listening to his point of view and being encouraging. And, and there's some tension, though, 
And the tension is that you always love and care as a father and I'm so proud of the work he's doing. And at the same time, uh, being willing uh, to provide uh, advice and constructive feedback. And that tension goes between being that very proud dad, uh, as well as uh, a mentor and, and, a, and maybe sometimes that tough love mindset in conversations uh, as well. And being willing to do both and to do it the right way. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Actually, you made me think of a couple of other things that I've tried to do. You know, one is ever, you know, because I've been pretty busy and I'm sure you are too, Mark, you know, is I, but I, you know, when I, I would always take the kids, each of my three children on trips with me, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, you know, when I had to do things. And I'm actually lucky that now, even though they're older, uh, they still actually enjoy that. So I, in fact, I had to go, uh, because I was doing some things for the United States government, State Department. Uh, they wanted me to go to Israel for a week, and I took Michael. They wanted me to go to uh, the Middle East for a week uh, for three different countries, and I took him on that too. I took his brother to uh, Sweden and, and, uh, um, and, and Denmark as well, and his sister I've taken to a number of things. In fact, I took her to different board meetings when, I was, when, when she was younger, uh, and, and so I think that, that that kind of exposure and also the opportunity to talk to your, you know, talk to them one on one like that, it was was good. And, and I'm like I say, I'm amazed that they still, even though now they're 27, 30 and 31, they still uh, like to go with their old father on trips. So, I, you know, it's, it's so that's still very nice. Let's dive into our second topic, entrepreneurial endeavors, and talk about some of the amazing work we both have been a part of. Uh, Bob, it's no surprise all the amazing research you've produced that your lab is arguably one of the greatest entrepreneurial um, biology labs in the world. You've really cultivated your lab and the engine for scientific entrepreneurship. Uh, can, can you talk about how you've done this? Yeah, well, I'd like to tell you I have some great formula, but I, I don't think so. You know, I think basically it, it really kind of just happened starting with what we discussed earlier, you know, I, I, I learned from my advisor, Judah Folkman, I, I watched him and he was a role model for me. And he, he would ask big questions. And even though a lot of people at the time when he asked those big questions, didn't believe that he could solve them or didn't even agree with the fact that, like I say, there were blood vessel inhibitors and things like that, you know, he kept persevering. And so that was a great thing for me to see. And I kept doing the same thing myself, asking questions that I think a lot of scientists using what's called conventional wisdom would say were impossible. They could never work. And I kept trying to do that. And I think that people in my lab would see that and they were drawn to that too, because if they did work, then the impact would be very, very high. And, um, and, and so that was something that I've kept doing. And I also felt that it was really important to treat my students and and the postdocs in the lab really well. I care about them. They're not quite my children, but they're, 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 they're people I care about greatly. And I want them, just like I want my children to have great lives, I want people in my lab to have great lives. And, and so I, I felt like that, that that was also important is to treat people well, to try to you know, be as good a person and as good a role model as I could be, and to encourage them to do things you know, on their end when they graduated and even while they were in the lab that could change the world and make it a better place. 
And, and if I have the number correct, you've trained over now a, a thousand people through your lab over the years, um, many of which have gone on to be professors. What advice would you give to rising star professors looking to entrepreneurialize their labs? Yeah, well, I, I actually, that, 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 that's true. We probably have over a thousand people. I think what I tell people, well, again, you try to look at, at, at issues about moving from academia to uh, entrepreneurism or companies. I think the first thing is, regardless of what you do, you know, whether you do it or not, ask big questions, ask questions that you think will have a huge impact. But once you do that, I mean, some of the advice I give is, let's say you make some progress. Well, I think it's important to file patents. I think patents end up being very, very important, especially in the biomedical field, because you need to raise a lot of funding, you know, to move these therapies forward. Uh, I think a second thing, and it's tied to that in a way, is don't start a company too early. You know, investors can get tired if you start something too early, if you have too, uh, if you have too many things to prove before you you know, get say into humans. So I think you, you wanna, you know, so I think those are a couple of the things that, that I think are important. I think also, you know, many people in academics, myself included, are probably not great business people, but so it's important to have partners who are, and those partners could be great CEOs or great venture capitalists. You know, I've been lucky over the years that I've, I've met some wonderful people and in uh, both as CEOs and as venture capitalists or investors. and. I think that's that's been very important for me. Uh, so those those would be some of the things that I would tell them. And, and from the work from your lab, you've co-founded now over forty biotech companies, including the likes of Sears, Squeeze, Frequency, Lyra, and uh, a company I think we're all very grateful for these days, Moderna, uh, amongst many others. What is the common thread that unites all these ventures together? Well, I think that that there's a couple common threads. One is they're all big ideas. Two, you know, and they're they're almost always platform technologies, meaning that you can apply what you're doing. I'll take Moderna as an example. There you're using messenger RNA and nanoparticles, and you can just change the messenger RNA or change the nanoparticles. So it's kind of a platform you could use. And Moderna's like in 14 clinical trials, and there'll be many, many more, uh, you know, as time goes on. Um, you know, for all different diseases, not only the vaccines, but heart disease, cancer, and so I think a third thing that often unites them is, especially when I'm involved, is that materials often play a key role and delivery often plays a key role. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are some of the things that, uh, that they hold in common. I guess also that we've got generally made a intellectual property a real you know, premium, that that's very important. And Michael, as a corporate development leader at industry-defining digital therapies company, Pair Therapeutics, can you talk about how you see the future life sciences evolving uh, to meet this digital age we're going through? Yeah, I mean, I think we are seeing before our eyes more of an intersection between digital health and biotech. And I think the work that Pair is doing and the digital therapeutics space in general uh, that's, that's really important is, is figuring out ways where we can leverage that technology, you know, smartphones uh, or sometimes hardware and figuring out ways where we can use those technologies to really help patients um, in a therapeutic way. And so I think as we look to the future, I think you just continue to see an evolution there where 
you are able to show that you can take on more and more complex diseases using smartphones um, and using different aspects around them, uh, whether that's using classic psychological methodologies uh, that are now digitized or using things like digital biomarkers for measuring different things, which can inform data around how to um, deliver things to patients. And so I think there's just a lot of really exciting work that's happening. And I'm very excited about the space. And some might say now that you're on the licensing side, uh, you're, you're more of the buyer as your father would be the producer in some senses. Uh, can you give kind of the, the flip side of this and talk about advice for university professors and how they should work with companies on licensing? Yeah, I mean, I think by seeing how data is, you know, obviously as, as the person who's creating these kinds of, of, of science or technologies and what that means to him, I think it's definitely been something that's been helpful for me as I, a lot of the people I talk to are in academia. And so I think, you know, these are people that have spent, you know, their whole lives sometimes, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, their, their whole life's work trying to build these important solutions that they want to see change the world. And I think the, the important thing about licensing or spinning out companies is it gives it a chance to, I think, help the most people because it allows it to get commercialized and then can get out there potentially faster and at scale in a way that can impact a lot of lives. And so I think the main thing is, is just figuring out how to speak their language and make them feel secure about what's going to happen and how things will roll out, at least for the most part, with, uh, with that technology. Any requests for licensing at the moment you can share with us? <laughs> I mean, I mean, for, for me, I just, you know, I always just want to see very good clinical data. I think as a new space uh, and how people are approaching the space, I think the more that we can see great clinical data to really show that this stuff works is, is incredibly important. So for me, it's, it's just a, a constant hunt to find those products out there that, that have excellent clinical data to back up uh, what the product really can do. And some might venture to say uh, not too, dim too dissimilar from search and evaluation is actually venture capital. Michael, you've talked about running Old Silver VC. Um, can you share with us a little bit more about your work here and what do you look for in companies? Yeah, I mean, we, we get really excited about companies that are doing things a lot of times in materials. Uh, so that, that can cross either core biotech or just sort of material-based science companies. Uh, we get really excited about the science and seeing how they can use those materials to solve these, these problems. And I think, you know, a lot of what I've learned from my father is, you know, how do you have or I guess, how do you make sure that these companies have really good IP or have literature to support what they're saying and doing? And, you know, those are some of the lessons that I've found it's really important from him. And I think it speaks to a lot of what we look for in companies, at least on the product and science side. I think probably the most important thing though is the management team, especially at the early stage when we're looking at these companies. You know, these are the people that are having to go in there day in and day out and, and push this forward. So I think for us, it's, it's important to find entrepreneurs that we really believe have what it takes to 
make it happen and to, you know, continue to raise the money to continue to build the product to where it needs to go and be able to motivate people, inspire people, and really have that whole package uh, around them. And, and probably also just being able to be fluid, you know, being able to, to take advice from people that are smarter uh, or have been there more than them and that they're able to take that and go back to the drawing board and come back fast and, and better. So those are some of the things I think that are really important that we look for in these investments. And, and now, Bob, I'd be curious if you put your BC hat on here for a moment as well. What advice would you give to startups spinning out of academia looking to commercialize their technology? Well, I think it depends on the, on the particular area, but, you know, I'll, I'll pick the bio area first, but, I, you know, number one, if you're in the bio area, I think intellectual property is key. You know, I find like if you don't have that, investors are highly unlikely to, to invest. Um, you know, two, I do think if you have uh, a big idea, you know, something that's transformative, then you want to do it. I, I think you don't want to just start with the idea, though. I think you really would like to have a paper uh, that demonstrates, again, if it's a medical area that you've gone Gone, gone pretty far that you've got like in vivo data, data animals or something like that. I mean, if you can have data in humans, that's that's even better. Um, and obviously it even depends on, on the exact kind of technology you're talking about. But I think the fundamental point is to have advanced the technology somewhat to reduce the risk and that it's not just an idea. Um, I think it's really important to have a great partnership between, you know, great academic scientists, but also have really good business people um, and, and, and have really good investors involved too, uh, who are going to stay with the company, not only when it does well, easy, but when they run into problems and that they can give you good advice. Um, so th those are some of the things that I, I would think would be important. Uh, let's go into our third topic, the great beyond. Um, at Alix, we believe that the key to changing the world starts first with identifying the right problems to solve. So I'll throw it out to you, Bob. What would you say are the grand challenges of life sciences in the upcoming 20 years? Yeah, well, I think that's a, a, a wonderful question. I think there are a lot of challenges, um, you know, but I'll, I'll pick a few. You know, one, can we make new body parts? You know, can you make, uh, you know, this, this is an area called regenerative medicine or possibly tissue engineering, but can you make... Um, a new heart for people? Can you make uh, treat people who are paralyzed? Can you make a new pancreas, a new liver? Um, and, you know, you could go on and on. Can you even do that outside at the body? You know, could you make a, a heart on a chip, a uh, liver on a chip, so that you would could tremendously reduce uh, animal testing and, and tremendously reduce human testing? And it's not just making them, it's making ones that are are, are, are valid, uh, you know, that really mimic what happens in humans. Another big area I think is, is, is data analysis, you know, things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Can we make predictions from vast amounts of data? And that data needs to actually be very good, clean, well-controlled data, you know, that can tell us how, you know, why certain uh, molecules may uh, treat cancer, for example, better. And can we figure out ways of coming up with, uh, with new, new molecules that might work even better still. I think clearly the area of, of 
genetic therapies, uh, you know, which we've certainly witnessed uh, by the COVID vaccine and the company that, as you mentioned, I helped start Moderna, certainly a good example, but it's, you know, but there's this whole area of genetic medicine, which could involve messenger RNA, could involve uh, gene therapy, could involve gene editing um, and, and, and so forth. I think the area of drug delivery and nanotechnology is, is, is also going to be very important. I mean, first of all, you need that to solve the problems I just mentioned. You know, if you try to give messenger RNA by itself, it'll get destroyed. But if you put it in a nanoparticle, you can protect it and get it to work. Um, and there's so many delivery challenges. Can we deliver drugs to the brain? Can we deliver drugs uh, by swallowing pills? I mean, large molecules by swallowing pills. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, and sometimes the biggest challenges and the biggest uh, discoveries, we don't know yet because nobody's discovered them or even invented them. But there's no shortage of, of wonderful things that uh, will happen. By the way, in what Michael's area, digital medicine uh, is, is another one that I think could, could be very important. And Michael, as we dive further in this world of digital medicine, our relationship with therapeutics will become increasingly more virtual. Uh, what would you say are the grand challenges of uh, digital therapeutics in the next 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I think for digital therapeutics, the biggest thing is how we, over time, get these things to be more and more adopted into greater society. And so I think for things like digital therapeutics, it will, it will, it will take time like any new space. But I think it's one that we're starting to see some of the really important signals uh, as well as the momentum behind it, uh, where we start to see the things start to fall in place that are needed. You know, everything from, you know, multiple companies um, that are working in the space and, and doing important work, uh, things like regulation uh, is really important uh, as well as, as consumer or as patient adoption uh, and clinician adoption. And so I think over time, we'll see more and more of that. And probably the challenges that will happen are as we get closer and closer to the body. So, you know, right now, mainly we're using smartphones and, and sometimes smart watches. Um, but as you start to do things like use biosensors uh, or use more probably biotechnology in parallel with the, uh, the digital therapeutics, I think that that's when, when things start to get probably even more uh, interesting someday, uh, but also has potential, uh, probably more headwinds just because those are things that are so new compared to what we've done and what we're used to, where you can start to have something that's literally in your body tracking things, informing your phone via Bluetooth, and then informing decisions of drugs where I think it, it, it starts to be both exciting, but has more potential issues around it just because these, these start to get more and more complicated from everything from the, the regulation around it, the adoption, as well as the, the ethics too. I think a key question for, for Bob and Michael, what role does ethics play in guiding the development and use of this ever-increasing power of biotechnology? The ethics, I think it increases to play a role. I mean, it's something that's always really important, but I think as we, I guess, create more powerful solutions, 
um, or things that can assist us, there's probably more things we have to consider, especially as they impact more and more people. So I, I think it's something that we always have to think more and more about, you know, what are the ramifications? What happens if we do this or that? And you already start to, I think, see some of these things like uh, come up in the news, like CRISPR and how do we think about CRISPR and what that means for society? Are there limits of where we should even go with science? And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer there, but I think they are all things to consider, you know, as we think about these powerful tools, what they can do and how we think about uh, using them and what's responsible or irresponsible. Um, and I guess the speed to which they happen and I guess how we think about them because of that too, because obviously as the biotech, uh, the, I guess the rate of biotechnology increasing in terms of funding and all the things that we're seeing, you know, that there's going to be more and more things that come out, uh, which obviously creates more and more decisions and things to think through. So I think it's something that, that that's very important. Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, ethics to me are, are important every stage of the way. I mean, they're important, you know, when you think about clinical trials, when you think about, um, you know, people's lives, it's important, you know, uh, on everything you do. It's important how you treat people who you work with. It's important how you treat people who are going to be receiving the different kinds of treatments you're coming up with. Um, so I, I think it's, it's obviously, you know, you, you want to think about that every step of the way. Uh, before we come to a close here to cap off this incredible episode, a few rapid fire questions. Both of you, Bob and, and Michael have been part of numerous biotech startups wearing multiple hats, operator, founder, advisor, investor. So throughout all of these different dimensions and responsibilities, what are some of the most surprising things that you've learned that you'd share with our audience? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I guess the most fundamental thing, you know, which I, I, uh, I, I think Margaret Beat said uh, as an anthropologist, she said, never let it be said that a small group of people uh, can't change the world. She said, it's never happened any other way. And I think that's the wonderful, I'm, I'm sure I'm misquoting her, but, but, but that was sort of the spirit. And I think that's what these little companies have done. I mean, it's just amazing to see. And, and, and I have to admit, you know, people would tell you that that wouldn't, you know, conventional wisdom is that you're always going to see these giant companies, you know, dominate. And yet over and over and over again, whether it's Google or Moderna or Genentech, you know, you see these tiny companies come out of nowhere and change the world. And I think that's, is surprising. And I think, um, I mean, you, you don't know which one's going to do it, but really that that's what's transformed though. You know, that, that's entrepreneurship and, and it's, it's, it's just been amazing to, to watch over and over again, but every time it happens, it's still a shock and all these analysts end up being wrong. All these people who tell you that your technologies are never going to work are wrong. I mean, I got to see that happen firsthand over and over again. Michael, your thoughts. Yeah, I think it's time and patience. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I, that I've seen through both dad's career and then certainly as my career has, has begun is, is it, it just takes time and you have to be patient. Like, 
you know, you, you want to think, you know, within a few years, something huge can happen, but it, it, it's always small wins that lead to these big ones. Like I remember as a kid, you know, dad talking about Mementa, you know, there's going to be this, it was going to be this massive kind of company is really excited about where it could go. And, you know, it took a really long time for it to get there. Um, and, you know, we, we obviously saw the, where, where it was acquired this year by J and J and, you know, now they've done some really exciting things, but it took a long time. And I think that, you know, that's, that's what you see with any of these things, you know, Regeneron or other companies where, I mean, sometimes it can take 10, 20, 30 years sometimes for a company to realize its vision. And even then, you know, it still takes more time. So I, I think it's really interesting just what it takes and how you have to be patient for these incredible things to happen. I guess it makes sense, you know, for something incredible to happen, you know, why, why would that just happen overnight? So um, I think that for me, that's the biggest thing. There's a famous VC adage here that the journey is never as hard or as easy as one might expect, but it generally takes a lot longer. Um, so I think that definitely applies for sure. Yeah. Bob, and as we think ahead here, we've been, been gazing in this crystal ball. If we can do so one more time, uh, describe biotech in 2050. Where will we be? Well, what, what a great question. I mean, I think biotech is going to continue to thrive. I think, you know, I, I think it will go, you know, to many, many areas. And we're seeing that, uh, you know, people are, are doing, will be to, still to be doing the things that I mentioned, uh, you know, on, on genetic therapies, cellular therapies, and, and, you know, digital medicine, and artificial intelligence, and so forth. But I think we'll know so much more. I think we'll understand so much more about the body, about the cell, about the brain, you know, that I think, and, and, and many other things that, that, that we'll see, you know, just so many advances, so many great companies. And, and I think we'll also see biology, you know, biology applied to, you know, biotech applying to other areas to a greater degree, not just medicine, but, you know, possibly nutrition, possibly the environment. I mean, all kinds of things that we may not necessarily think about today. Um, but I think that uh, the, what's going to happen, it's, a, it's an explosive what's really happened in terms of how science and biotech has uh, evolved over the last 40, 50 years. And I, I don't think that's going to stop. I think it will continue and do better and better. We, 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 we echo the sentiment here on our side. I feel like platform companies, especially this trend we now call tech bio affectionately, it is just really getting started and feels that we're uh, just embarking really on what could be a, a century long investment trend in, in our eyes. So definitely share the feeling there. And Michael, to, to piggyback on that question, uh, can you describe digital therapeutics for us in 2050? Yeah, I mean, I think in you know, over 30 years, We'll start to see, I would imagine almost every pharmaceutical paired with software, uh, even at its base level as a companion where it's tracking things around the pill. But I think at its higher level, I think you'll see a lot of drugs paired with a prescription digital therapeutic as an adjunct and they'll be prescribed together. And I think because of that, you know, hopefully you'll see better outcomes and you're already starting to see some of the clinical data uh, to, to support that. I think in addition, 
you'll also have more sensors that are able to be used through both your smartphone and your smartwatch. Though by then, uh, and I'm certainly no, not, not too ingrained in the uh, tech space, but I can only imagine what those, I guess, will look like in 30 years. But whatever the, I guess, standard of, of phone at the time or watch at the time, so it'll be, certainly will be something. Uh, we'll be measuring all sorts of data around the human body. And I think that those will inform a lot of what these prescription digital therapeutics, as well as the drugs are doing or when they should be dosed based on that data, both based on time as, as well as the specific amount. Uh, so I think that you'll just continue to see more and more connected health towards, you know, obviously what we've been experiencing all our lives by taking pharmaceuticals. So I, I think there's just more, they're more and more uh, entrenched together. This has sure been an exciting almost 60 minutes and we're getting near our close. I, I've got one question for each of you. Uh, Bob, we've talked a little bit earlier about Father's Day and the opportunity that you've had to work with your children that want to be entrepreneurs. Any other thought on encouraging and cultivating that entrepreneurial spirit? Well, I think, I think one thing that I've always thought about, which again, I'd learned from different people, maybe my dad and maybe my postdoctoral mentor, is what I call positive reinforcement, meaning that there's no such thing as a bad idea. You know, that if somebody's curious, if somebody comes up with an idea, I, you know, your son or your daughter or anybody, you know, I think you want to encourage them. I mean, it doesn't mean their idea is perfect, but I think it's really important to realize that every question, there's, there's some good in that question and that anything is possible. So, I mean, that would just be one thing that I think is, 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 is really important. And I've seen the opposite happen when people get, you know, if somebody discourages somebody over and over again, I think that's just a, a really bad thing. That's excellent advice. Before I turn it over to Chaz for closing, Michael, any other thoughts? Uh, Self-promotion or shameless plugs, welcome. No, I mean, this, this has been great and, and I've really enjoyed this. I, I guess my, my only thing to say is, is I, I hope as people continue to think about the future of health, that they continue to think about the place that technology has within that and where that intersection lies and, and how fast uh, that may be coming. Uh, specifically, I, I think uh, the, the area of prescription digital therapeutics are very exciting. And, and Bob, how can our listeners learn more about your work? Well, gee, I guess we, we have websites and you know, I've given a lot of lectures, I guess, here on YouTube. So if somebody does a Google search, they could probably see quite a bit of, about uh, about it. But uh, I'm happy to, you know, if somebody wants to email me, it's pretty easy, rlanger at mit.edu. And I'm happy to try to, you know, send papers or th other things that might be useful. Harvard Thank Business, on the entrepreneur thing, Harvard Business Review wrote a pretty long article on me in 2017. You know, that may also be good. It's not totally up to date anymore, but it's a, it's a pretty, you know, good analysis of, of what we've tried to do. Fantastic. Thank you, Bob and Michael, for an absolutely incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It was really excellent questions. It's an honor to be on this. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.